The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Well, hello everybody and welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is Trinity's Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities. My name is Eve Patton. I'm director of the Long Room Hub, uh, and it's a real pleasure to welcome both our guests who are with us today in the building, uh, and of course, everyone who's listening to us online and is joining us today uh, from around the world. Welcome to you all. Today, as you know, is uh, the 15th of September, and it is United Nations International Day of Democracy. Uh, this was first marked by the UN in 2007 in a resolution uh, that aimed to reflect on the state of democracy in the world. And if I can just quote from that resolution, International Day of Democracy is as much a process as a goal. And only with the full participation of the international community can the ideal of democracy be made into a reality. The theme for this year's Day of Democracy is strengthening democratic resilience. Uh, so we thought it would be a very appropriate day on which to launch the Schuler Democracy Forum. The Schuler Democracy Forum builds on much of the hub's previous and existing work on the crisis of democracy. And I know that we'll put some information on that previous work into the chat for you. Uh, we want to look at how to build that resilience that the UN Declaration talks about by engaging our research in the arts and humanities in questions relating to democracy, media, questions relating to history, to language, to culture, and questions, pressing questions about technology and communication. As part of our plans for the forum, we want to reach out to new audiences and in new formats. And I'm uh, ridiculously excited that we're actually launching a Shula Forum TikTok account today. Uh, please follow us if you do use TikTok at Democracy Forum. And of course, as many of you know, we're already on Twitter. So if you're tweeting today, and I hope you will tweet, uh, please tag at TLR Hub and at Shula Forum and use the hashtag Democracy Forum. And again, we're going to put all of that information in the chat for you. Central to the Democracy Forum project is our new media fellow in residence. And you will shortly be hearing from our very first, our inaugural fellow, Mark Little. You're very welcome, Mark. Mark will be introduced today by the Democracy Forum's coordinator, who's Dr. Ellie Payne. And I just want to acknowledge the tremendous work that Ellie has done in, in getting this project together and congratulate her on it. But before I hand over to Ellie, I also want to acknowledge with very great pleasure, Dr. Beata Schuler. Uh, Beata has given encouragement to the Hub for very many years now, and she has generously supported our vision for the Democracy Forum initiative. We are very honoured, Beata, that you're able to join us in person today, and I now invite you to come and say a few words to us. Thank you. Thank you, Eve. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Firstly, let me say that I'm so happy to be here live and not virtual. I was homesick for Ireland. Um, I haven't been here for 18 months involuntarily, as you can imagine. Um, about two or three years ago, I had dinner with Jane Oldmeyer, and we shared our um, opinion that our democracies were in danger. And it was on that evening that I think I said to Jane, I would support the initiative of Democracies in Crisis, and I would fund a fellow to work um, on, on this topic. One of my main concerns is 
the role the media plays in the destruction of some of our democracies. The media is a very important tool for us for information, but it is very influential and it can be very manipulative. It is powerful and sometimes it can be dangerous. So when I started to fund the, or said that I would fund a fellow, I was hopeful that um, we would outreach with the research on democracy and media into the public. And Ellie was engaged, Dr. Ellie Payne was engaged. And over the two years now you've been working here, I must say that I've been very impressed with your research and with the way you go out into the public with podcasts, with articles. And um, I was so impressed that when you put forward uh, the proposal of the creation of a forum, I think it didn't take me very long to say yes. What shall this um, forum achieve? Or my hope for it would be that it gives us tools into the hand to detect fake news and to restore an atmosphere of fair discussion and tolerance and to bring it out into the public. Christianity said to us, go out and do good. I believe this is not enough. In some situations, we have to stand up and fight for our democracy. We have to prevent evil. We will not change the world with this forum, but I always say, if we have that much success, it was worth it. And with those words, I would like to thank Ellie for all her work she's done. I am delighted that Mark Little is joining the team and I wish you both success. So thank you, Beata, for both your kind words and your continued support. We really couldn't do this one without you. So to quote the UN Secretary General today on the UN International Democracy Day, Antonio Guterres, let us commit to the safeguarding the principles of equality, participation and solidarity so that we can better weather the storm of future crises. So as you've heard, I'm Ellie or Elspeth Payne. I'm the coordinator of the Schuler Democracy Forum. I have the privilege of working with Mark, Mark Little, our very first media fellow, to bring together research and industry perspectives in what we hope will be both a practical and a creative project that offers hope and solutions, not just problems. And it's also my privilege to introduce Mark today. And to do this, I want to read a message from Trinity's provost, Linda Doyle, who sends her apologies as she cannot be with us today. I am very pleased to see the launch of the Schuler Democracy Forum at the Trinity Longroom Hub. And I am delighted to welcome Mark Little back to Trinity as the first media fellow. Mark first came to Trinity as an undergraduate, completing a BA in economics and politics and serving as the president of the student union and editor of Trinity News. Since graduating, Mark has worked for RTE and Twitter. He's founded the first social news agency, Storyful, he co-founded the media tech startup Kinzen, and he's recently served on the Irish government's Future of Media Commission. I am sure that the fruits of this new collaboration with Trinity's Arts and Humanities will be just as exciting, innovative, and inspiring as Mark's time here as a student and his career since. Without further ado then, I want to hand over to Mark for his paper, Media for Humanity, a brief history of the future of journalism. Thank you, Ellie and Eve and Beata uh, for the introduction and the, the Provost has been awfully generous to me to be honest. My, my uh, academic performance as a Trinity student was pretty awful um, because I was so connected to the life of the college and even today sitting, listening out that window at about one o'clock and you could hear voices, you could hear conversation and discussion. So even so far I've had such a wonderful day because I've realized that first of all, great novelty to be here 
not to be pressing mute buttons and have a reason to wear long pants. Um, a little bit intimidated by the word lecture, I have to say. And when we were having a conversation, myself and Ellie, to be fair, have been conspiring now for a few weeks about what we want to do this year in such a broad topic. And the word we keep using is interrogation for the first year of what we're doing. So this is, I think, for me, an opening of that interrogation. So 30 years since I left Trinity College, uh, I left, I walked out the gates with one dream, and that was to be a foreign correspondent traveling in the world. And I managed to achieve that dream. And then along the way, um, I kind of fell into a series of projects that brought me to this intersection of media and technology and democracy. And along the way, there's been just one nagging question that I could never get out of my mind as I sort of transferred from journalism into entrepreneurship. And that was, why does the media and journalism in particular do such a bad job at preparing democracy for the future, right? We are tremendous at diagnosing the problems. We are tremendous at telling you about the last crisis. We are tremendous at telling you how great technology is one moment and then telling you the next day how terrible technology is. But what is it about democracy that makes us so incapable of understanding the human emotions and connections that at any moment in time could be the inflection point of something great? And when I was thinking about this and the reason why this year particularly is so exciting is I think we're at a reckoning as a society. We already know this sort of toxic brew of factors that have created such a crisis for democracy, and Beata has talked about some of those. But we're at a reckoning where we're facing an existential threat in climate change, a moment of exponential change in technology, where journalism can't survive unless it does things differently, unless it starts to interrogate its role. And so for me, if there's an interrogation, there's a potential answer. And I am taking the baggage of 30 years and packing it away and hopefully beginning my own process of learning with Ellie. And we've got some great ideas about that project. But this essential question that I'm going to be asking this year is like, how, what would happen if the core function of journalism was to prepare democracy for a period of history when the only constant is going to be change, when there's no new normal, when the only thing we're going to see in the future is a never normal, a constant period of ambiguity in our lives. How could journalism be fit for purpose in that future? So that's kind of the question that I've been thinking about a lot. And before I go into maybe some of the ideas uh, that I hope we'll interrogate, I'm struck by just a profound sense of gratitude to be back in Trinity College, walking through this campus. I mean, you know, it's actually quite, it's quite emotional, you know, because I think about the cobblestones and the corners of the campus when I was going out as an 18-year-old. I came here as the first of my family to ever go to university. Um, my grandmother used to work in Fox's cigar shop across the road. She never set foot in Trinity College her whole life. And yet she was there looking up at the statues of Ed Burke and Goldsmith. You know, so for me, I came from a family, an Irish family, that Trinity College was so far beyond anyone's expectations. And I came here, I was going to be either a politician or a journalist. I knew one of the things would happen to me. And it, it was a kind of crystallizing moment when a religion teacher at the age of 15 said I was prematurely cynical, which I thought, you know, that's, you know, that's pretty much pegged me somewhere in the middle of these two things. So when I got here, I was full of student radicalism. I mean, I, I just got here was, you know, like, I feel like Marlon Brando, like, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? You know, I mean, this is 1985. Unemployment was 17% in Ireland that year. I just looked it up last night. We were being encouraged to emigrate by politicians. This was a country where you could not buy contraception. If you were a woman, you couldn't have an abortion. If you were a woman, you couldn't even get information about abortion services in other countries. Homosexuality was illegal. Divorce was illegal. So again, if you weren't cynical, you weren't paying attention. And so for me, I came into college, became president of the Students' Union. I pretty much never ripped up a cobblestone, but I've kind of occupied pretty much every public space in this campus in pursuit of some other issue. But the issues that I remember interrogating back then, including freedom of speech, one of the big issues when I was student president, was whether the debating society should give a platform to a Holocaust denier, David Irving, a revisionist historian. And you know, that debate about freedom of speech, its limitations, and how we deal with the enemies of democracy in our public debate, that debate that took place in 1988 is still as relevant today. So for me, in many ways, as I look back, I'm still in the present. Now, luckily, I kind of realized that politics was partisanship, it was bitterness. And for me, what I was lucky enough to be at the birth of was a wave of media technology that began in the mid 80s with the introduction of desktop publishing. 
the first Apple Macintosh, the first time that the process of creating media and journalism in particular was democratized. And I never forget that first moment touching a Mac in House 6. Um, and it was one of those moments of awareness where it wasn't the technology. I didn't care what was inside that box. What I realized was the, the tactile, almost sensual sense of creation, that human connection to this technology, which led me to that first rule of media tech that's never failed me. It's never about the technology. It's about the human behavior it changes. It's about the human connections that it facilitates. And journalism has to do a much better job at understanding that without becoming fixated with the next new thing. And so that was at the beginning of that awareness of a journey that would take me 30 years hence. And as I was leaving college and I was convinced I was going to be a journalist, I still had that sort of conflict in my mind, which was, I want to be a journalist, but I also want to affect change. And the fact that that was a contradiction for me, in retrospect, is part of the problem. That as a journalist, you're supposed to park your stake in the future, you know, and just be dispassionate and objective. And I'm still grappling with that later on. And that contradiction led me to a very contradictory career, to be honest. Um, my first job in journalism, believe it or not, was actually media, was selling advertising for the British Communist Party's theoretical journal Marxism Today, which is a strange way to start out. Um, and yet later in my life, my career, I would sell a company to News Corp, to Rupert Murdoch. So I've gone sort of across different political divides. I've also obviously worked for the state broadcaster, RTE, and I've worked for Silicon Valley libertarians who have a very different view of media. And finally, the moment at which I kind of understood what I wanted to do in journalism was the moment I had to leave journalism, become an entrepreneur. So my whole life has been full of these contradictions that, again, still revolve around that central question. Why is it that journalism can't take a stake in the future of our democracies? Does it have to be dispassionate? And part of what I realized was some of the things that I have to challenge myself about when I became a business person and a leader was I used to think about history as a kind of a, a science. And, you know, in college I studied, you know, Hegel and I, I heard about the thesis and the antithesis and the dialectic and materialism from Marx and the predetermination of history from Einstein. And I realized that's just not the way history unfolds. It's not the way the history of the future happens. What I realized was that the future is created for, by people who at that very moment are completely uncertain about what happens next. We only see narratives in retrospect. And there's only very rare, I mean, rare moments in history. Maybe 9-11 is one, or if you're old enough to remember JFK being assassinated, when you know that is a moment of inflection, right? The rest of the time, history is people looking to the future and having no idea what happens next. And so therefore, the first thing I'd like to interrogate is why do we keep talking about history being the first draft of history. Like, why, you know? Because that temptation to need to define the past with simple narratives, I think, blinds us to those human emotions that happen in that moment. It blinds us to the, why, the reasons why people take decisions. And I think as long as journalism is always trying to fit the narrative of today, you know, like, look at Afghanistan. We had to, if you're in the United States, impose Vietnam, Watergate, Pearl Harbor, just a small finite number of historical events. We see everything through those prisms. And I think we have to reject that. I think we have to confront the fact that journalism kind of fails a basic empathy test, right? So if you think about empathy, it is not only understanding what someone is doing, but why they're doing it. And it was for me, I think, so incredibly uh, well exemplified by Donald Trump and his rise. You know, there's a great quote, and I think it sums up the media's attitude and their failure on empathy. When someone said, it was in the Atlantic, they say the media took Trump literally, but not seriously. Trump voters took him seriously, but not literally. Now, what was meant by that was the journalists were decrying Trump for his gaffes, his extremist statements. The Trump voters were kind of ignoring that, and they were hearing a dog whistle. They were hearing somebody that for the first time could articulate their rage, reflect that back upon themselves. And so again, that's where I think journalism trying to fit a narrative, uh, an easy comparison, misses out the humanity of how the future uh, emerges. I think about it a lot about Obama as well. Like I covered Barack Obama 
uh, in the early days. And we always think about Obama as a smooth orator who made that connection immediately. They didn't. In the early days, Obama was really uncomfortable. Now, seeing him in Iowa, he was such an inferior politician compared to Hillary Clinton. And there's a moment he talks about where he went to Greenwood, North or South Carolina, and he's in his depth of his campaign. He's in single digits. Hillary Clinton's beaten him. He's considering dropping out. And at the back of the room, someone shouts, fired up. And the hall goes, ready to go. Now, that was a local high school football chant. And that was the moment Obama talks about in retrospect that he knew he'd made a connection. Because he saw, again, the dog whistle. He saw these people looking at him after five years of the forever war. This was 2008 wanting America to be better. And they were seeing in him that reflection. And he picked that up. And that was the moment that I think you realize he made the connection. And it became, yes, we can, and it became si se puede. And so I'm always fascinated by those moments in history where people get it. There's something happening here. It's, it's what Raymond Williams talks about, is the structure of feeling. It's the moment when culture shifts, and it's not yet been articulated by the media. Um, and the best way of expressing this is in poetry and in barricades and in graffiti. It's when people pick up a phrase and start using it on themselves and they start trading dog whistles that animate them to action. But we in the media don't really get it yet. And I always think about the year of my birth, 1968, which was uh, when they say that uh, Paris was when poetry ruled the streets. And this is why I am so in love with this project, was that it's poets and it's playwrights and it's dramatists and it's science fiction writers who are so much better at thinking about the future sometimes and capturing that poetry. I always think of that great line from Paris 68, one of the slogans was run comrade, the old world is behind you. And, you know, again, capturing that idea of like the first urgency of now that Clinton used to quote and Obama used to quote. And so when I look at the financial crisis is a great example. Um, I covered the financial crisis. I was in the anchor seat in RTE, and I look back on some of the great journalism that's been written. But again, it's kind of written in retrospect. Whereas if you want to see a really good truth about the financial crisis, look at the big short, the movie. The great thing about the big short is it shows you how hard it was for people to do the right thing because everyone was telling them the property market is sound and how easy it was for good people to do the wrong thing. And it's that kind of truth that I just wish sometimes we in journalism were paying more attention to. And I always think that, you know, journalists love that phrase, the banality of evil that Hannah Arendt puts out there, but we don't interrogate what she actually meant was. She says, the sad truth is that most evil is done by people who never make up their minds to be good or evil. Again, back to this moment, people faced with a choice, ambiguity, fear, and they make choices that sometimes deliver. Donald Trump, that deliver Bolsonaro, Modi, the, the kind of ideologues and anti-democrats around the world. And I think we've got to understand the humanity of those decisions, not whether they're right or wrong, or they look like 1960 or look like 1940. And so I think the biases, and I know there's a big debate about whether bias in media is the critical problem. It depends what bias that you pick. I always think the biggest bias is the bias described by people like Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, the heuristics, you know, the shortcut the brain takes these behavioral psychologists were the first to call out the fact that when we're faced with difficult decisions, we jump back to confirmation biases where you tend to believe people that agree with you. Recency bias, you buy a car because someone you just met told you the car to buy. Media never really interrogates that particular bias. And my, I suppose the ultimate cardinal sin is the concept of media as a fortress, a state, that we're a pillar of the establishment now, we're fighting back, obviously, against the other parts of the establishment. But a core part of that when I was coming of age in journalism was detachment. I remember we were so proud that we didn't know how our business made money. We were so proud we didn't look at the ratings because we wanted to be uncontaminated by any real engagement with the audience because we were the gatekeepers. Now, obviously, that was a good thing in large measure because it protected us against that race to the bottom over the past 10 years where we were all looking for eyeballs by the millions. But at the same time, last week, the Reuters Institute released a great report in which it showed the biggest problem for media in the modern democratic world is not that people don't like us, not that people don't trust us, but that they're indifferent to us. Because frankly, I think we look indifferent to them. And one of the great pieces of research I've read about trust in society is that trust 
is created by people who make you feel they have a benevolence towards you. They have your back. And I think we have to reconsider the role that journalism plays in taking a stake in the outcome of some of those problems um, that, that we decide uh, we want to diagnose and is to think about that. And so obviously what I'm talking about is a critique and a very pessimistic one. I hope that doesn't sound too pessimistic, but I think there's something happening right now that will turn out in years to come. The journalists will write about this moment as an inflection point. I believe there's a reckoning coming. And I think about it through the eyes of my 16 year old and 14 year old kids, where first of all, there's an existential threat, an extinction level event against humanity that will not be solved by politicians alone. I grew up with nuclear weapons. I grew up with the idea that we were going to be destroyed by someone pressing a button in Washington or Moscow. Today, my kids live with a future where our world depends on all of us taking a level of coordinated collaborative action that has never been seen in history. It's not about politicians on their own, although that's obviously part of, part of it. And it's going to require the change in the life of everybody in this room and all of our kids in a level that I don't think we've started to understand. So that's the first part of the reckoning, an existential threat. The second is what a futurist and writer, Azim Azar, who's just published a book called Exponential Describes, is the exponential gap, that the pace at which technology is accelerating is getting even faster, but the pace at which society is dealing with technology is, is still incremental. And that gap is just getting wider. And the third element that I think if you look at this from a 16 or a 14 year old person's point of view, you'll see is that there's been a radical decentralization of power. If you're a kid, right? Your phone, I think someone already described this as you know, a vector for misinformation, but it's also, if you're young, your life. You have more power, first of all, more computing power on that phone than the Apollo 11 landings had, but more importantly, you have access to controls over your diet, your exercise, your sleep patterns, increasing your education, your healthcare, and obviously your friends and the information systems. And if you're 14 or 16, ask yourself, do you feel more empowered by having that phone in your hand or a ballot paper in your hand? And that's where I think there's a great reckoning here is that I think more and more, increasingly as artificial intelligence increasingly plays a part in directing our outcomes, increasingly as decentralization happens in finance, for example, with the blockchain, we are going to have this radical decentralization of power that is going to continue to undermine democratic structures. The final part of the reckoning is an overabundance of information. You know, when I was growing up again in my first newsroom, we were kind of dealing with a scarcity of information. Because remember, that was what journalists did. Uh, they, they dug and they hacked and they took information that nobody else wanted them to see. And we put it out there. We had controls over information. Today, clearly, I think it's Nate Silver, who's a pollster in the United States, has written a great book about this signal and the noise. He says, we face danger whenever information growth outpaces our understanding of how to process it. And I think that is the reality today for all of us, but particularly for younger people. There's been a context collapse. When you go on your newsfeed in the morning, it's impossible to see who you should trust. And therefore, the autocrats realize this. And instead of censorship in the traditional sense, we're now seeing what uh, author Peter Pomerantsev talks about as censorship through noise. People flooding, for example, right now at the German elections, we see Russian state media flooding social media with divisive messaging. And so I think an unartful probably way of thinking about this is what Steve Bannon once said, his tactic in support of Trump was flooding the zone with shit. What he meant was, we don't have to persuade you that what we say is true. We're just going to persuade you that what you read from everybody else is a lie. And once you create that level of distrust, that for me is the flourishing bedrock of disinformation and misinformation. So again, it sounds very negative. It is. It's a reckoning. There's no way journalists survives this reckoning unless it changes. And that's where I get to the more optimistic part of what I hope we'll be doing this year in the interrogation. When I think of the optimism um, that I see out of the last year and a half, one of the things I noticed was, again, with the pandemic, the politicians said to us that we had a role in solving this problem. You know, back at the financial crisis, I remember we were just told, hey, the public would take the pain, we'll make the decisions in Brussels, you've no part in the solution. With COVID, we all were told we had to protect ourselves and our families. We were enlisted in that solution. 
And when we, that happened to us, the role of the media suddenly changed. So expertise was now suddenly valued. Follow the science. And who were the gatekeepers? The media. And the media, I think, played a different role than normal. They obviously, obviously an outcome here that, that we were all behind. So now that we have a stake in the outcome, our focal point as the media was building resilience in the face of ambiguity. It's not gonna, vaccine's not coming tomorrow, we gotta wait. Sorry, there's another lockdown. So the media, and again, that was contested in most countries, but I think the media played an incredibly positive role in thinking about their foundational principles in the pandemic, which was to build resilience in the face of ambiguity, trust the science, create spaces where we could debate, where to the point that we had earlier on, the science changed. And we, we know we have to expect that. So we're not going to give you pat answers. We'll have some debate. And I just something come out of the last year and a half that while I know when we see the protests and the anti-vaxxers, I still saw something there that I don't think we've quite captured. It's a very positive thing. So I, I'm going to, I, you know, I think there's a lot of the detail we can maybe talk about now, we'll maybe talk about in some of our public events. But where I think I'd like to leave a much more optimistic take uh, on this reckoning is to take that moment with the pandemic and think about two trends that are happening in journalism right now that are of their moment that I think are going to become so powerful as engines for a democracy, a media that's aligned with democracy. The first is what we call engaged journalism. So, you know, as I say, the voice from nowhere, as Jay Rosen, media critic, calls the, the media today, where we don't talk to our audience, that has radically changed. The reason I became an entrepreneur is I was at RTE and I remember being a primetime anchor and I realized I, I wanted to have people give me questions. So I went on Twitter and I said, uh, hey, would you tell me what I should ask the Minister for Finance? My direct messages were flooded with people who are you know, from property or from the banks giving me a question that I then took to the Minister. And I would go back and I'd get them telling me sometimes that I was crap and I was a terrible presenter. But then I'd say, well, well why? And they'd engage with me. And I became a better journalist. And actually, in the end, it got to the point where I realized I could be a better journalist if I could build a system where the audience were absolutely a part of what we did. We created story phones, and the Arab Spring happened. And during the Arab Spring, um, our editors in Dublin would be communicating with the activists on the ground, and they would be showing us images from Tunisia, from Egypt, from Syria. And we would ask them, can you help us locate where you are? And they would show us the minaret, or they would show us a picture of a newspaper. And we together would be verifying the future in real time. We became that archive of now, and that was engaged journalism. Now, I know that sounds kind of science fiction-y, but think about it now. What is the most exciting business model in journalism? It's reader revenue, people paying for the service of journalism. We think about subscriptions, but I also think about memberships, people joining the cause, you know, buying into a local forum that gives them up-to-date news about their place or a professional intelligence service. I think about the future of donations, for individual journalists who set up accounts to serve a purpose. And in the future, I think about tokens and the economics that will come about when people can actually be part of the ownership structure of media. Now think about that. For the first time, we can have a business model that is aligned with the involvement of our audiences. So for the first time, the quality of your journalism is based on the depth of your engagement to the community that you serve. So again, I'm not saying that we're there yet. Um, a lot of false dawns have happened with good business models for journalism, but that is a reason for optimism and interrogation. And secondly, solutions journalism. Sounds like a buzzword. Many people think it's a way of saying we'd be happy, clappy about our future, but it's not. Solutions journalism is a movement that's emerged from investigators in the United States who get cut and turned down by the editors because they heard that we want to investigate the, uh, the solution to AIDS in Africa is too dark, too much, too much, uh, probably we can't put that on the front page again. It's too boring or it's too depressing. So a new form of journalism emerged that said, right, what if we picked a solution? We looked at ways that we've solved this problem, tried to solve the problem. And solutions journalism now is emerging as one of those areas that, for example, in climate change, I think gives us the possibility of not just diagnosing the severity of the problem we face, but investigating the solutions. Journalism that takes a stake in the outcome of the problem that it defines. And I think for me, that is the way forward when we think about these existential threats. And I think our kids will expect that. Um, and I start to see journalists and newsrooms taking this very seriously. And those two uh, powerhouses, I think, right now of innovation and journalism are well worth watching. Um, I could talk about the, um, the sense of 
crisis in the information ecosystem and disinformation. It's what I do every day. Very proud to have Razan, who I work with the Kinzen. Um, we are looking every day at a particular sliver of this problem because in some ways the whole concern about fake news and misinformation is now so so broad as to be almost meaningless there is dangers that we get into regulation that will quash freedom of expression so we have to be very careful about defining what the real problem is there is this problem of coordinated campaigns of deception real world harmer harm like anti-vax political disinformation and campaigns in germany for example at the moment there's a second problem that I think we should think about separately, and that is about shared facts. It's obviously we can't solve this problem by more information. It's not about producing more truth. It's about trying to build trust around a set of shared facts that we need as a society to agree on, to take the next step as we try to solve our major problems. Um, you know, of a shopping list of things, this is not the place to go through that. Um, I would say that it, it will involve quite clearly funding public media on a level we don't do at the moment. Um, there's no way around this. If you're in Europe, you've got to back organizations like the BBC and RTE. If you're in the United States, you've got to fund local journalism. So the funding of public media is going to be critical. Now, how we represent the public, that's open for debate. But funding organizations that provide free information. So as all the good stuff goes behind the paywall, we have to have quality free news available to our society. The second thing is reimagining that public square. What does it look like? We're dependent on social platforms that are driven by business models and algorithms that are optimized for outrage. What if we redesign that? How do we think about that? How would we think about the regulation we might introduce? What about the next social network where perhaps users have control of their data? They have privacy, they have their own settings for their level of willingness to be exposed to new ideas. I think this is the second area of excitement for me as we go forward thinking about a solution to this problem of trust. But we also need a humane technology movement. And I think we're starting to see the emergence of people that realize that artificial intelligence is not magic. It's about the humans that design it. It's about the data that's fed into it. We need humans in the loop as the new form of AI goes. So in medical diagnostics now, we have AI that processes vast amounts of data, but it's humans that are involved at every stage at choosing the data that matters and then doing the review when diagnosis emerged. It's something that we're hoping to, we champion at Kinzen. So human technology that doesn't just take a, a cheerleader stance, doesn't just take a tech lash anti-technology, but thinks about a human tech system, I think is vital. I'm going to kind of leave it there because, you know, again, as you can hear, there's 30 years of uh, interrogation building up inside me, but I'll leave you at this part. I'm really fascinated by brain chemistry. I don't know about you people, but like, think about the last few years, we've all like got into a better understanding of our, of our brains and how they work and, and how they go wrong. You know, about the amygdala, that's the thing that reacts to the bad headline, outrage. We feel fearful. It's, you know, in many ways I see the rage and the Trump supporters, it's the amygdala, fight or flight. And we got the prefrontal cortex where we go to think optimistic, rational thoughts. What if we built a media system that was primed not to create the sensation and the outrage, that was actually primed to think a bit more like cognitive behavioral therapy, to reward your intention to set a course of becoming informed, for example, um, to try avoid triggering the kind of sensational outrage that has driven our former business models. So I'd love to be thinking about that. And this is one of the areas, just to give you an example, where with the humanities, for me, what's incredibly exciting is when you add the humanities into something like neuroscience or AI, that's when magic starts to happen. When we think about neurohumanities, which is a term I've just discovered, but how do we drive a more mindful media system? When I talk to people like, I was mentioning Ian Robertson, I was talking recently about his great book about confidence. How do you build resilience as a human being? There's so many analogies to how we could build a system of media that rewarded us for setting good intentions rather than hijacking our worst instincts. But, you know, I'll come back to where I started uh, to finish off and say that I, I, I think that where I feel there's a challenge that we need to interrogate is that journalism and the media in general will lose if it continues to associate democratic media with the existing institutions as they are. I think democratic media will fail if we continue to obsess about being the first draft of history 
instead of embracing the ambiguity of the future and, and getting our audience ready for that. And I think we need to encourage people to get curious about what's around the corner, but remove the fear of that, because I think that's such a huge fear in our democracy. So I think deep levels of engagement between communities. I think journalists being judged on their interest in the outcome of the problems they diagnose. And I think rewarding the best intentions of a citizen rather than trying to hijack their worst instincts. I think these are the elements of a new system of media that's fit for purpose. But again, I come back to the humanities. My inspirations in life have not been Steve Jobs. Um, I hate to say it about my journalism school, not necessarily journalism educators. They've been authors, and they've been playwrights, and they've been musicians. You know, I think about what we're entering into. It's going to be a period where we're going to fail. We're going to have to be okay with that. And who's the best person to think about when you think about failure? It's Sam Beckett. Ever tried, ever failed. No matter, try again, fail again, fail better. I literally have that on my desk at home. And then when I think about what I would love to do with this project is uh, a song from the Buzzcocks, believe it or not, like an 80s pop band. Uh, they have a great line which says, nostalgia for an age yet to come. You know, that idea of being excited about the future and about our ability to influence it and shape it. And that's the kind of media that I would love, a media that could create in a democracy nostalgia for a time yet to come, not fear based on the past. And that's what I hope we can do, interrogating together with Ellie this year, with your help and everybody who's listening here, hopefully this is a process of inclusion uh, and give us something to come back at the end of the year having some answers, if not practical solutions. So thank you so much for your patience and thank you Ellie for the platform. Thank you, Mark. Um, I'm hoping we can get your 30 year career now into this 15, 20 minutes that we have. Um, so hold tight, everyone. Um, actually, before I pass over to the floor, I just I just actually want to ask you one question. You've talked about the funding of public media, which is obviously a conversation you've been involved in. You've talked about disinformation, but I was just wondering, could you speak a bit more about the role of the traditional media yeah. in the system we're in and the system we're hoping to develop as we go forward? Yeah, there's this toxic feedback loop that media sometimes like to ignore, which is that we blame disinformation on, you know, Russia or these sort of shadowy groups like QAnon. But actually, the elite media, the elite politicians, are the ones that have the vested interest in driving that kind of disinformation. We can see it in so many countries. We're looking at Bolsonaro right now in Brazil, you know, driving what is a grassroots kind of from the bottom upwards form of disinformation where the sort of the, the mobilized movement sets the hashtags and sets the and then it's it's really inflamed by those elite politicians and then you see media sometimes without knowing it inflaming it further by just repeating verbatim um the the, the claim as if you know there's two sides to a story you know i'm i love that phrase about like if it's raining you don't say well i've got someone on one side it's going it's wet rain and it's dry rain you know you, you put your head at the window and see if it's raining and journalism oftentimes because it wants to stay in this unbiased objective position will in many ways just inflame and repeat and allow these things to be uncontested so it's this terrible toxic feedback loop in which the vast majority of information that causes real damage is not coming from shadowy trolls on social media it's in many cases coming from people that have a political agenda that's aided by it and sometimes by journalism that you know sees clickbait and sees a way of drumming up conversation. So, yeah, I think uh, social media platforms have an awful lot to, to be held accountable for, but, you know, there's a lot of elite activity that's making this problem worse. And then, of course, there's now the pressure of, as a, of a traditional journalist to break the news story on Twitter. So I think we're now in a, a circular system. But thank you. And, and I'd like to open up the questions to the floor now, both in the room and in the Zoom room. If you're in the room, just to remind you that someone will be coming around with a mic. Um, so just hold tight before, um, and please do remove your mask for temporary so we can hear you. Um, and if you're in the Zoom room, please put your questions as I can see them flooding in. And just to explain, I'm not starting the hub TikTok already. Uh, I have the Q&A on my phone, so apologies for that. And I will either read them on your behalf or one of my colleagues will invite you to unmute. Um, so while we're getting the, the room ready, maybe I will first go to a question um, from our online audience. Um, and, and someone wants to know in why in a period of change would we trust the media? 
Yeah, and it's a great question based on what I think is this, this terrible indifference that people feel toward us, because I don't think, like I say, the research that we've done on this in benevolence that I've, you know, based on public relations, actually, believe it or not, PR companies and a lot of investigations, but why do people trust a communicator? And it's that idea of, you know, do you have my back? And I, th I sometimes we think we feel very detached from the realities of people's lives. I also think the diversity issue in this broadest possible sense, like we built newsrooms that were not representative of our audiences. Um, you know, and I think there's a great phrase that's in, in really, in, in for me, an exciting phrase to hear, you know, not about us without us. You know, I'm hearing this an awful lot more from groups who have been marginalized um, and, you know, gender clearly, sexuality, and obviously age, <laughs> you know, like there's so many reasons not to trust the media as it's currently constructed, you know, which is the man on the telly, literally the man on the telly, as I was for a long time, um, where actually I think a lot of the people working in that kind of construct would like out of it, mm -hmm. would like to have more people in the conversation so they could become better. Um, and that's the one thing I've learned about being an entrepreneur, like, you know, com companies live or die on the diversity of the perspectives they hear. And if you've no diversity in your company, um, you will fail. Diverse teams win every time, hands down. So therefore, um, I think it's a, if people ask that question, it is not necessarily an indictment of the individual journalists. And I, and I think a lot of groups have a vested interest in inflaming distrust. Mm -hmm. But I do think we're in a process right now, right now that has to involve a very, very keen reckoning on how we represent the audiences uh, that we serve and how we get them involved. And you know, hopefully, my 14-year-old will look and see someone like him, and in the case of my 16-year-old, her. They may go on TikTok to see that person, but you know, that's what I would like for media is to feel that um, you know, there's not a difference between them and the composition mm -hmm. of the audience. I'll take another one from online then, if there's not in the room right now. Oh, sorry, Bill. Thank you, Mark. Very hey, energizing. Great to see you. Um, uh, the, uh, a question in the spirit of interrogation, which I think is a great word um, for, for all of this. I wonder if I could ask you to explore a bit more for us how you what I think is a tension in your thinking, which is between centralization and decentralization. Mm. Why do I say that? Well, I think if you look back 30, 40 years, the media was highly centralized. It was the man in the telly with the, with the, uh, with the microphone. It was Walter Cronkite. It was Dan Rather. It was Ed Murrow before him. There was a kind of anchor in the middle of media. What's happened over the last 40 years is massive fragmentation of the media. So you can have whatever media you want. And part of the question is, that I think you're addressing is, what you want is the, the, the buyer, the citizen, the, the, uh, the consumer to want a better media. The US has engaged media and journalism, it's called Fox News, or it's called something else, but it's, it's engaged in a hundred different ways. What is it about the, the citizen that you think we could think about that that we should seek to encourage them to want the sort of media that you want i find surprising the thought that there should be more financing of public media you have financing of public media you cannot have engaged journalism on public media because the next round of funding won't come because the last round of engagement will have annoyed somebody so it, there's a contradiction in that centralization that you're suggesting, but the reality exponentially, as, as Ima Zah, my former colleague, I'd like to say, um, at The Economist said, keeping up with the decentralization, but ultimately your finger is absolutely on the right thing, the humanity of the reader, the humanity of what's going on, the everyday decisions that make history including the everyday decisions to buy media to receive information how do we influence that and how do we think about that decentralization versus centralization issue it's, it's a great expression of the tension and i think first of all i would say just about public media what i do find about public media is the evidence still suggests that in countries where there is a strong public media polarization is far less so there is a sense of a shared sort of platform by which people can uh, come together. And I think uh, Fox News is obviously the product, first of all, of a former boss of mine who realized that there was a market for inflaming people. 
Um, and I, I think that's definitely part of what the move, what we're moving from. I kind of think about journalism. And when I was on the Future Media Commission, without you know unveiling any secrets, we had a debate about whether we want to talk about journalism or media or information. If you think about it, if we take the let's say less controversial phrase information, there's kind of information as a public utility. It's like water. It has to be of the highest quality. It's available to all. It's supported by the public purse. Um, and we all consume it. And we, we have to understand that we have that equal access. It's a democratic right. I think then of journalism as a service. And journalism as a service is different. I have a place, a passion, or a profession. And I'm willing to pay for expertise and information that gives me something more than, than what's available in the tap. It's bottled water. Again, forgive me for sloppy analogies here. But I think there's, you know, these two things are aligned. They're parallel, but they're not the same. You can have both. And in fact, I would argue you need to have both. And so if we take the second part, the journalism of service, here we start thinking about journalism in a broader sense and journalists as a broader definition. If I think about an industry analyst who just happens to know something about disinformation, and I'm willing to pay a high level of premium money for intelligence. Is that a journalist or not? I mean, I think the key criteria is, has that person earned the respect um, from the community for their expertise? And so therefore you think about that, that's for me the currency of the realm of engaged journalism. My job title, me being Walter Cronkite or the man in the telly is not enough anymore. My currency, my standing, my authority is based on whether I have the respect of this community for giving them information that helps a better outcome in their life, helps them get a job, you know, promotion or helps them know what's going on in their education system in their locality or helps them, you know, follow whatever they're passionate about on television. And so I think that idea thinking about it very much as public services and private services, um, the role to play them both helps us design systems where the incentives are, are way better. So I think a lot about, you know, in the old business model, we had to capture millions of eyeballs. And you'll know this from The Economist, you know, you had to get subscribers. That's a different game than getting millions of people to watch your piece of content for 10 seconds and capture that eyeball. Where if you and The Economist, obviously, are building authority. I remember you, the great app campaign from The Economist was a, a person being conducted through a city by a piece of string you know, leading somebody to a destination where they knew they would get a better outcome. That's how you get people to pay for a service. And that's how you retain them. So, you know, I think the incentives are aligned when we have journalism as a service paid for by the communities that respect the people providing the information and then strong public utilities when it comes to information that's available to all and not behind a paywall. So again, I don't have the answers about the creative tensions, you know, with our Fox News, will it exist or not? It will continue to exist as long as there's that rage. But at the same time, let's build the alternative and not prescribe necessarily for the worst case in this scenario. That would be my, my view of it. But again, as I say, we're at the beginning rather than the end of a journey here. Thanks for the question. So I'd like to take another one from online now, Mark. Um, two questions, in fact, that are related. One is asking where the lack of empathy comes from. Um, they suggest that journalists write from a personally almost risky empathy. Um, and the other asking if the media is dominated by raw emotionalism, do we leap from outrage uh, to emotion? So um, empathy, emotion, outrage, yeah. your thoughts on, on those? It's funny, I, I don't know, maybe there's journalists in the room who might differ, but I kind of think empathy is kind of weakness, you know? Like I remember being in Banda Aceh in uh, Indonesia after a tsunami, and I was asked you know, to describe the scene, and you know, words can't describe. Yeah, words can describe. You know, any journalist has been in a war zone who smelled death. It's actually the most human smell. I know I don't want to get into too much detail on it, but to describe what I felt, the empathy I had there in that moment, was kind of like I was embarrassed by it. Didn't want to say it. Um, there is kind of a dispassionate journalist, and I think it's a bit macho as well, that you're strong, you go into the war zone, you jump off the plane, you go straight to the scene, you're there, you're getting shot at behind me. I have a joke about, I, we actually have a friend of mine who was a journalist um, and his cameraman kept all of his takes where he just stood in front of an explosion. And that was his thing. Behind me, there's a bomb gone off, you know? And he just took every time he said it, it was, went on for hours. So, you know, journalists were like that. They were brave, under fire, but you ask them to emote or have empathy or think about what it's like to not be able to get back on that plane or go back to the hotel and have a whiskey at the end of the day. And that was something we were never asked. And I don't think we were always kind of embarrassed by it. I know that's very impressionistic from my point of view, but 
I don't think the way we were trained was to look at emotion and those connections. So yeah, when I look back in the moments, people ask me the highlights of my career, they're never about the golly gee, I was in Air Force One, or it's, it's about, you know, being on death row and, and interviewing a man who was gonna die in two hours time. And just, you know, this is a murderer, but like, what do I say about that? And I just, I don't know, it's moments like that that I was lost. And it's terrible. I look back at that thinking I couldn't find a way to express the words. So I mean, sorry, that's a long way of saying something which I've been grappling with a long time about journalism. Um, and I think ultimately that probably is part of it. But I think the other part of it as well is, is we don't have a responsibility for the outcome. You know, mm -hmm. we can make predictions about an election and, you know, they're gone in two days time. So people are kind of reckless. Um, and I also think people don't want to be too risky in their assessments in the moment, you know, they want to mm -hmm. play safe and they want to go for what they think uh, feels like a safe bet at the time. Mm -hmm. So therefore they draw upon mm -hmm. previous historical trends. Like think about Ireland, right? How many phony political scandals get gate added to them? Because it gives us some sense of, you know, historical accuracy or analogy when, you know, I don't know about you, but I think a lot of these controversies do not rise to the level of the president of the United States, mm -hmm. you know, surveying political opponents. So yeah, again, there's, a, there's this tendency not to emote, not to be empathetic, but go for the facts, ma'am. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of classic old formulation. Uh, and then the, the other side of it, and the other question we had come in was, do, do our media systems leap from outrage to, to emotion, do you think? Yeah, but the incentives, again, it's, it's down to incentives. Um, you know, I think about this a lot when I think about current affairs programs that are on, you know, one channel, and Barcelona's playing Real Madrid in the other channel. You know, and I, just, I always think about those incentives, like, you know, that you know, you, you run up against the Champions League and you're like, well, okay, we got a lead now with something that's about the ratings. So there is definitely a tendency uh, when you're ratings driven um, to be competing for headlines that are kind of going to grab people's attention. Uh, it's what the editors of The Sun used to call the Hey Doris effect. You know, mm -hmm. if someone came on the television, you brought your partner in to watch it. Um, there is that on, in some cases, in television. And then for obviously journalism that's dependent on advertising dollars and, and euro, um, it's clickbait. You don't have to get people to read the whole article as long as they come in and spend two seconds. You know, that's counted mm -hmm. and you get some dollars from that. So it's all about incentives and economic incentives. And that's why I'm excited to see uh, journalism as a service being the alignment and then having public service journalism can ring fence its, its current affairs and its news um, so that they don't have to compete for those, you know, eyeballs against Champions League or mm -hmm. the latest movie. And I think we have one more time. I'll try again. I think we have time for one more question. I don't know if there's any in the room before I go to online. I know we've got them coming in, but just check that. No. Okay. Uh, so one question we have, and I guess this, this fits with this idea of looking to the future. And we see social media being used to create opportunities for engagement and participation in movements for political change across the world. So how do we keep what is valuable while changing what is damaging? Hmm. I think a lot about the internationalization of journalism, because again, the old model was that you sent a foreign correspondent based in Dublin, London, New York to a country that um, you went in, you got a fixer, you got a hotel room, you reported on it, you got on the plane, you got out. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that, you know, social media for all is false. When I first saw social media, what it allows to do is to get people on the ground, tell their truth, their story. And it really was one of the most exhilarating things during the Arab uprisings. I never forget the first time we picked up in Storyful the hashtag Sidi Bouzid, which is the place in Tunisia where a, you know, a, a flower seller called Mohammed Bouzizi set himself on fire. And literally, that was the beginning of the Arab uprising. Wasn't a journalist reported that for weeks? Only when Ben Ali in Tunisia was going to be toppled and then the foreign correspondents went in. I remember the light bulb moment for me when I left RTE was watching um, protests in Iran, mm -hmm. being led by students and young people. And I knew the place, it was Valiasser Square, and I'd been there, and they were telling me there were bodies on the street, they were showing the bodies, and the correspondent was sent from the BBC was telling third-hand rumors about the shots fired. But I was watching this in Dublin. Now, for me, for all social media's flaws, this idea mm -hmm. that people, nothing about us, you know, without us, and that for me is what's so exhilarating about foreign coverage or understanding of the world, that it's voices from those places, from those communities, people excluded before are now having a voice. And so for me, that is again, one of the, the powerful drivers that is going to be a hugely positive force, as long as we can sort, when everyone has a voice, who do you listen to? Mm -hmm. And it's back to Bill's question, 
how do we generate reputation? How do we generate credibility in a much more democratic, flat, meritocratic world? Um, that is the challenge I don't have an answer to. But when I think about the possibilities for storytelling, for democratic media in which there is no voice excluded, mm -hmm. um, I get so excited by that. And I'm still excited 10 years after seeing those first images of the Arab uprisings. And actually, I think we're going to just squeeze, sorry, Eve, one last question in in the room while Eve comes up. Roseanne just wanted it. Sorry. Thank you so much. And it's great to see you. Uh, face to face First time in person for a while. <laughs> exactly so my question actually about free speech because the most important important component of democracy or let's say european values is free speech but sometimes we are recently getting to a point where we have yes this is speech a free speech is allowed whereas another uh, free speech is not allowed. Sometimes there is a fine line between the two. We are finding media organizations, social media platforms, each one have their own policies about that. But I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do we, do we need to have more definition of what free speech is? Uh, my other question, and it is as well very quickly, that we are recently, I feel, getting to a point where we have different societies, two societies, we are not talking to each other, and the media role in the future should bring people together, make people uh, have dialogue and speak and chat instead of dividing um, like uh, groups or society. We don't want to be in our own bubble and not looking at the rest of the world and the rest of the societies. Yeah, thank you. Great question. I'll quickly summarize if I could. It comes back to Beata's point earlier on about can we have disagreements in civil ways? And I, I do feel that one of the areas of work for us is to look at how, for example, recommendation systems, um, personalization, AI field systems can start to actually break the bubble. You know, you like this point of view, maybe you don't like this point of view, but you should see it. And I think there's experiments showing that if you can find ways to expose people to a point of view that's not threatening and challenging and angry, that they really appreciate that idea. So breaking our tribalism is going to be, I think, one of the key things about technology in the next wave of media. In terms of freedom of speech, people often mix up what we're talking about in the current environment where there's this disinformation and online harm. You know, for me, a failure is having to take down a piece of content or an account. What we're trying to do is make sure people have freedom of speech, but there's no right for an algorithm to take your hateful speech and promote it to millions of people and this is what's happening we don't talk about this enough the reason disinformation uh, that's harmful that is creates real world harms is spread is not because of the value of the idea it's because the algorithm picked it up and realized it was going to get a lot of views so we talk a lot in our world of disinformation of freedom of speech but not freedom of reach you don't have an, a, a right to have a platform and get an algorithm behind you to put you in front of millions of people. And that's where we've got to hold the, the, the platforms to account. The final part I would say is, again, we've got to separate out these words. There's too many pieces of regulation emerging now that are knee-jerk reactions to online harm, particularly in the UK and Canada. And I really worry that the backlash um, against, you know, a sort of a knee-jerk against disinformation could actually be quite harmful to the cause that we're fighting for, which is, just protect against that edge case of damaging information and fight for freedom of expression, the freedom of speech um, that is transparent and not promoted by algorithms. So again, I, you know, there's very detailed ways of doing this. It's, it's not rocket science, it's not magic as I said earlier on. All these systems should be open to scrutiny. And that's the first thing is we need legislation that forces platforms to expose the data they use to train algorithms and transparently show us the algorithms. Think 2007. Financial system was taken down by products knowing you how where they were built. We're in a similar situation with the information economy. The algorithms are not properly understood, and we are in a kind of an information bankruptcy. Thank you very much, Razan, for that very salient yep. question on which we'll draw to a close. Uh, Mark has talked to us today about that very profound moment of reckoning that we're all facing into. And I know that my colleagues right across Trinity, uh, everyone who has joined us today for this launch, uh, will want to be part of that process of reckoning. 
today we've had the beginning of that conversation and there will be many more discussions to come. Uh, let me end by thanking various people who've made today's conversation possible. I want to thank you, Mark, uh, very much for joining us and, uh, and for giving us your thoughts today. Ellie, uh, Ellie Payne, uh, our coordinator, I want to thank the Hub team who've put this event together and, and supported us in the last few weeks, uh, to Sinead Pentany and the team in Trinity Development and Alumni, to AD Partners for their technical support, and again, of course, to Beata Schuler uh, for joining us today and for her vision and encouragement. And my thanks to everyone of you who has joined us today, whether it's here in the room or if it's online. Uh, if you're interested in getting involved in the work of the Democracy Forum, and I hope that many of you will be, please email Ellie. We'll put Ellie's uh, email address in the chat for you, and you'll also be able to get hold of us through the Trinity Longroom Hub website. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter and now on TikTok. And again, those details are going to be in the chat for you. My first TikTok experience. Um, in addition to the forum programme, which you'll be seeing uh, on our website very shortly, uh, we've got many other events now running through the Trinity Longroom Hub for the new academic year. So you might like to join us uh, on Friday at midday for our Culture Night brunch conversation, which is going to be on the subject of writers' letters. Uh, and please register for that on the Hub website. And again, I think many of you would like to save the date for our first behind the headlines panel of this academic year. This will be on the 27th of September at seven o'clock. Uh, and you will not be surprised to know that we will be talking about the situation in Afghanistan. Finally, if you are leaving the hub building today, or if you're passing the hub in the days to come, please have a look at our new window quotation, which went up this morning. It's a quotation from the writer E.M. Forster. Uh, after the darkness of the Second World War, Forster famously was only able to give two cheers for democracy. I think that today, with your support, we have been able to raise a full three cheers for the Democracy Forum, and I look forward immensely to what this new project will achieve. Thank you all again, and goodbye from the Trinity Longroom Hub. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Taimuriya Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.